I want to welcome everybody to the webinar that Solidarity is hosting tonight. It's on workers self-organization, mutual aid, and socialist politics. We have uh, four uh, speakers to make brief remarks and then have a discussion. And our thought was that uh, as, the as the presentations go along, you may have questions and you can simply put them in the chat and we'll get back to them a little later. So uh, you might uh, also check out the Solidarity website. Against the Current is our uh, bi-monthly uh, publication. You can uh, go to the uh, contribution uh, button and uh, buy a subscription or even contribute. So here we are on uh, the eve of May 1st, which I think will go down as a very interesting um, May Day, since uh, most of us are under uh, lockdown. And yet uh, this celebration, which uh, occurs annually, it started in 1886 with the fight, workers uh, fight for the eight hour workday. Uh, tomorrow, even though many of us are on lockdown, there's going to be uh, various demonstrations, whether they take the form of a, a virtual town hall or a car caravan such as I'm going on uh, in Michigan, uh, or simply hanging sheets out the window to indicate uh, a rent strike. And of course, for the essential workers who will be at work, uh, they will be demonstrating in different ways. Uh, some by perhaps deciding to stay home uh, and have a sick out, uh, some by uh, going on a uh, a demonstration uh, while uh, socially distanced um, or in other um, other ways. Um, and it's interesting that Labor Notes has outlined some of the various methods that nurses have used to get their uh, PPEs and have a, have a, a safe working environment. So um, we're talking about self-organization, mutual aid and socialist politics tonight. Self-organization takes many forms because, of course, workers have many needs. We make demands upon the state because we need a collective and democratic society. But at the same time, we understand that this state, this capitalist state, uh, is not going to give us very readily what we need. And so we need to protect ourselves by, uh, by being together, uh, by finding our own well-being, and by understanding that we're not all the same and that there are some of us who are much more vulnerable than others. So it's uh, with that in mind that the uh, way that we organize uh, has different features. So in some ways, uh, in terms of mutual aid or cooperative uh, forms of, uh, of, of workers' cooperatives, in a certain way, it kind of prefigures on a very, very small scale the cooperative society that we want to create. Um, so with that in mind, I'm going to uh, begin to uh, call on the panelists. Uh, I believe we have two of the four here now, uh, that the other two hopefully will be coming in uh, a little bit late. Uh, the idea is that um, they'll, uh, each panelist will keep to uh, eight to 10 minute uh, time limit. Uh, if you have questions, please put them in the chat. And when we get to the question period, uh, I'll call on you to ask your question. 
So uh, our first speaker is uh, going to be Ann Finkel. Uh, Ann is a uh, member of Solidarity and the DSA Eco-Socialist Working Group. She's also a member of the Boston Teachers Union and the still forming uh, BTU Caucus of Rank and File Educators. So uh, let's hear from Ann. Um, so like Diane said, thank you. Um, I, my name is Ann. Um, I'm a member of uh, Solidarity in Boston. Um, although I grew up in Solidarity Detroit, so I wanted to um, shout out them as well. Um, I'm a member of DSA um, and I'm a teacher in BPS in East Boston, um, which is a neighborhood here in Boston. Um, because I teach out there, I'm also part of a neighborhood uh, coalition of community groups called Pueblo. And so that's kind of the perspective that I'm going to be speaking from. Um, so I wanted to just start by talking a little bit about the current state of schools um, as I'm seeing it as a public school teacher. Um, and what we're really seeing is that many of our students and families are really in crisis. Um, my school is in East Boston, like I mentioned, um, and this is one of the two hardest hit neighborhoods of Boston. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. The, the um, population is a lot of low-income families. It's a largely Hispanic population with a lot of um, workers deemed essential. And so what we see is that those who are working are getting sick and those who are not um, are really uh, struggling financially. Um, there's also a lot of undocumented folks out there and um, undocumented students at my school. Um, they're still working, but they are not receiving stimulus checks unemployment. Um, it makes it much easier for landlords to abuse power. Uh, and so given all of that, the teachers and our school and really our union has had to ask ourselves, what is our role in this pretty unprecedented moment? Um, one thing that the union did that I want to acknowledge because it was really great was that we put out a common good platform um, right away, um, which had some good demands, including calling to cancel MCAS, which is our big end of year standardized test. Um, as well as to pass a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. And both of those did pass um, at the state level, which is uh, really great, although it's just a first step, obviously, which I'll talk more about um, in a few minutes. Uh, so backing, kind of taking a step back from schools, um, thinking about the mutual aid networks that we're seeing. There's many mutual aid networks in different Boston neighborhoods. Um, the East Boston Mutual Aid Network, network which I've been um, working with is coordinated by a lot of really great community groups. Um, there's kind of two sides to the network. There's the food and resources side and then a fairly substantial um, informational information and educational component side, um, which has also been really great. So as a school, we've been working with the mutual aid group, um, as well as kind of tapping into our own staff resources. Um, this has kind of been a push and pull that we've had to figure out the best way um, to balance those two. So what we have right now is a lot of teachers signing up um, to buy and deliver groceries to our families who are in need, um, as well as working with the mutual aid group. And obviously there's pros and cons here. Um, as we kind of take care of our own families, it's in some ways taking them out of the mutual aid community network, although hopefully at the same time freeing up much needed resources for those who don't have a school community. Um, but it's been really important to us to continue to empower the neighborhood organizing as best we can. Um, and so one way we're trying to do that is by connecting families to that educational um, and informational side of the mutual aid. Um, there's been various teach-ins and webinars run by uh, the neighborhood groups in East Boston um, and in Greater Boston. And so as teachers, it's really easy for us to contact a lot of families very quickly 
to connect them to those um, teach-ins. Like I can text 105 parents in 30 seconds really easily. So that's a network that we're trying to um, make good use of. Um, we're also trying to push teachers to take the next step beyond just donating money and you know working on that charity side to um, try to see the deeper some of the deeper problems and pushing them to call reps and and demand canceling rent um, the MCAS demand things like that and so because this this crisis is so salient right now and that connection is so um, obvious between you know direct directly helping and seeing the deeper cause we're trying to capitalize on that and um, push teachers to take that next step um, who wouldn't maybe normally otherwise. So given that kind of big picture, um, in terms of where do we go from here, I think the question is how do we harness this collective energy um, to more radical demands and um, radical actions. So from the school perspective, what we're really seeing is that um, like all crises, this is laying bare the different conditions that people live and especially learn in. Um, from a school perspective, but we need to be aware that these hardships really existed um, for a lot of families before the crisis hit. Um, I recently heard someone on a webinar say, if we go back to normal, then we have failed. So trying to keep that um, in mind and that going back to normal is not the goal. Um, as Diane mentioned, I'm part of this kind of newly forming um, Boston Teachers Union Caucus of Rank and File Educators or CORE. Uh, and so we've been working on a couple things. Um, one, we were pushing for a housing guarantee petition. Um, we were pushing for BTU to sign onto that, um, which would cancel rent outright instead of just leaving families with massive rent debt at the end of this crisis. Um, and just a couple hours ago, I got word that BTU did sign onto that. So that's an exciting win, <laughs> our first step. Um, and in a lot of ways this is a chance for educators and parents and students um, to rethink schools and what our priorities are. Um, so as some concrete examples we pushed to get MCAS canceled and the, the test canceled and we were successful in that. Um, a lot of teachers we're always told that that's impossible MCAS cannot be canceled and here we are so um, we need to think about how can we can we always do that you know like MCAS was canceled that's that's how it should be or at least majorly restructured um another example a lot of parents um are getting a chance to homeschool their kids and determine the curriculum for themselves and so we're seeing parents spend more time outside do gardening with their kids implement their own kind of ethnic studies programs or curriculums at home um, more playtime for kids of all ages and so um, I think it'll be important coming back to ask parents and students what what do you want to highlight in the curriculum when we do come back. Um, another example, we just got internet to everyone and it was, and it's, well, we're working on getting internet, internet to everyone, but that's been a major push. But internet is so, is such an important learning tool at home for kids doing homework, especially high schoolers um, who are applying to jobs and colleges. So if we could get internet to everyone within a couple weeks, you know, it should have happened earlier and it needs to not be taken away at the end of this. Um, and as a final example, I know a lot of teachers um, and our union is worried about this corporate online schooling and all kinds of ed tech um, swooping in and kind of chomping at the bit to turn a profit and take advantage of this crisis. And so um, we're gonna need to organize to keep them at bay 
um, and not let this work to their advantage. Um, again, kind of taking a step back from the community perspective, um, the coalition that I mentioned that I'm a part of, Pueblo, um, is also becoming more political in their demands. Um, not all of the groups are expressly political, but that's the way that it's moving. Um, there's hopefully going to be a, a podcast starting. Pueblo will be starting a podcast um, with a political education element to it um, to kind of hopefully uh, continue these movements throughout this crisis and beyond. Um, so just kind of as a final thought, um, I think that this crisis has made it really clear that people are eager and willing to help their neighbors in the term, in the, um, in the case of teachers, people are really willing and eager um, and excited to help students that they know. So the question becomes, how do we get people to see that bigger picture? Um, the phrase that comes to mind is to fight for someone they don't know, but you know, I didn't make up that phrase. Um, but as you know, fight for someone they don't necessarily know as well as their true neighbors that people are working with right now. And how do we turn this like often well-intentioned charity into an actually organized resistance um, and calls for action that are directed at the root of the problem? Thank you. Thanks, Anne. So uh, Ted McTaggart is our next speaker. Uh, Ted is the uh, secretary treasurer of, of uh, the nurses union, the University of Michigan Professional Nurses Council. And uh, since uh, University of Michigan um, hospitals are uh, close uh, to the Detroit area, I've uh, been working with him and some of the other nurses to make sure that they have what they need uh, in their hospital. And it was very exciting a couple of weeks ago where we were able to organize uh, quite an effective car caravan. Um, at any rate, the nurses went into this with a fairly good contract, but the question is, uh, just because you have something on paper doesn't mean that uh, the uh, institution isn't going to try to take advantage of this crisis to uh, change many of the things that are on paper. So, uh, Ted McTaggart. So, I want to focus my remarks mostly on uh, my union, the Michigan Nurses Association's response to the Flint water crisis a few years ago. But first, just a little bit of background. I mean, I think the idea of, of um, mutual aid for, for nursing, for nurses unions is, is I mean, I, I think the term isn't necessarily used, but the concept has a, a, a significant uh, history. So I think um, what's very relevant is uh, the, so, the Michigan Nurses Association is an independent statewide union. So the Michigan Nurses Association is an independent statewide union of about uh, 13,000 nurses across Michigan. Um, it was from the inception of National Nurses United in 2009 until 2015, it was an affiliate of National Nurses United, which is uh, you know, a, a much larger Na uh, nationwide union. The California Nurses Association was the largest component of that. Now there's a lot of a lot of history on why why the Michigan Nurses Association is no longer part of NNU, which I don't have the time or inclination to go into here, but um, one 
one of the things that I think was very widely seen by um, by folks in the Michigan Nurses Association as as of great value in National Nurses United was what uh, was called the RN Response Network, uh, and that was it was actually founded a few years prior to the, the formal founding of, of NNU uh, in response to Katrina. Um, but over, you know, since 2005, 2006, the RN Response Network has deployed nurses to a number of, you know, all over the world, really, all over, basically doing disaster relief and solidarity um, kind of missions. Um, for instance, uh, you know, sending sending nurses internationally to um, to help out, you know, after hurricanes in various places. Sending nurses to Haiti, the Philippines, and then also, you know, hurricane uh, uh, the one in Houston a few years ago. I'm blanking on the name. Hurricane Harvey. Um, uh, other, uh, they've sent nurses to Standing Rock. Um, so a lot of it is, um, a lot of it is just disaster relief. But I think also, I think there's, there's a great deal of, um, you know, just where in nursing practice, I mean, nursing as a profession, I mean, there's a, a lot of, you, you can see a lot of connections between how, um, environmental racism, for instance, impacts various communities, you know, that you see, I mean, I, I, I worked for a few years as a pediatric hematology oncology nurse and just, you know, kind of seeing the, the impact that, that um, you know, people, that's not equitable, what, how people are affected from, from different communities where you might see like certain, you know, you could draw maps of, of um, you know, where incinerators are, where uh, chemical uh, facilities, you know, Dow, et cetera, are. Um, so I think that the fact also the nursing, I mean, it, it is not just first aid, but incorporates teaching, um, community assessments. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a, a pretty broad discipline. Um, so in 2015, it was a controversial thing, but uh, MNA disaffiliated from NNU. Uh, but at that time, that was when the Flint water crisis was really hitting. Um, and as, as sort of, a, um, I guess you could say a palliative measure or maybe, you know, something from, well, it was maybe a compromise of sorts um, for the people who are really upset to be, to be losing the connection with the RN response network, especially, I think that really helped to, um, to bolster the, the idea of doing something to, um, you know, really provide relief in Flint. Um, so over the next really about year and a half is, is, you know, the, the timeline before things kind of petered out. Um, but uh, MNA was uh, integral in a coalition called Flint Rising, um, which worked with local activists in Flint, uh, church groups, um, other 
community activists and people you know directly affected by the crisis but it was it was really the lead was taken by uh, a handful of black women in Flint um, and so I think that m a didn't you know didn't try to set the agenda necessarily but tried to use our um, nursing skills to help out as best we could. So a lot of the, the main role that nurses played in Flint Rising was um, participating in a, a community canvassing project where we were really assessing community needs. So the idea was to really just go neighborhood to neighborhood, door to door throughout Flint, just to see what people's needs were. I mean, there was a lot of water there were a lot of bottled water deliveries happening from various you know other unions from you know corporate sponsors etc so there was a lot of water being delivered to to flint but whether or not that was really meeting the needs was not totally clear and aside from bottled water a lot of a lot of what was affecting flint was not just drinking water but water for bathing. I mean, people experienced really horrible rashes that they were told it's safe to, to bathe in this water, but the evidence pointed, you know, elsewhere that it really wasn't. So, um, but going door to door, really just trying to see like what, talking to people, um, finding out like what are, what are your experiences like what what do you need and just trying to figure out you know as, as the first step toward connecting them with what they need but also talking with them about the ways that this crisis was um was brought on basically as a as a, a failed experiment to try to um save money by by switching the water supply to you know to a different watershed, which ended up eroding all the, the pipes and leaching lead into the water. Um, so really part of it is assessing needs and connecting people with the needs, a lot of which was not just bottled water, but um, the filters that, that were being recommended were distributed, but they were not fitted onto people's onto people's faucets. Most people had faucets that couldn't work with the filters that were that were being distributed and so people had no way to use them. Um, similarly with bottled water they were they were distributed somewhere in the city but the sites always changed and a lot of people didn't have transportation to get them and didn't know where to get them because the sites kept moving. Um, so being able to connect with people on that level and also um, encourage them to get involved. I mean, it was a, a membership organization in the community. Um, the reason things kind of started to die down in late 2016, I think just as the weather started getting colder, it was more difficult to get volunteers to, to do the door-to-door -door work. And you know, with, with any kind of door-to-door -door canvassing, I mean, it, it is a fact that you're gonna knock on a lot of doors that no one's gonna answer the door. Um, and that's especially true when, you know, if you're, if you're 
a white person knocking on the door and 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 a predominantly black neighborhood there might not be a lot of trust seeing white people knocking at the door um so the decision was made to to switch to uh you know to to try to hire paid staffers to do the door-to-door -door canvassing uh, rather than having volunteers do it um and i'm not sure how far that went but i think after several months of that i think flint rising did not really um continue to be terribly active a whole lot longer so that was unfortunate um but i think it was a really it was a strong experience unfortunately um this is a nurse with um from uh, with the the size of our our union on a statewide level we haven't been able to build a you know a standing arm like the rn response network to to kind of have an ongoing program of, of responding in that way. So it's really just kind of on an ad hoc basis. Um, but I, I, I think it was uh, a strong example of what, what can be done and what hopefully will continue to be done going forward. Thanks, Ted. And one of the points that you bring up is, is when a, uh, a formation comes in a time of uh, great stress, it may be able to continue, but then how does it develop its own life? So that's another question we might want to uh, consider later on. Um, I'd next like to bring uh, Michael Asia Luca into the discussion. Uh, she's the co-chair of the New Orleans DSA and on the steering committee of uh, the DSA Labor Commission. And she's a longtime uh, restaurant worker. I think restaurant workers have been really decimated uh, by the uh, by the pandemic. I, I read something like 95% are uh, unemployed at this particular uh, time. So, uh, Michael, would uh, you come forward? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, happy to be here. Um, actually, one of our new leaders um, in DSA. Her name is Joanna Davinsky and she was a longtime solidarity member and she talks about she talks about the things that she's learned in your group for a while. So maybe some of y'all on the call know, know her. But yeah, so um, I was brought on to talk about mutual aid and labor organizing um, after I was on a panel discussing that some of the unemployment workshops and tax clinics that New Orleans DSA was doing as a part of our fair fund campaign. So I'll just start from this basic kind of um, framework. I think that New Orleans DSA, we've developed and finally have come to this realization. We weren't, we weren't, we didn't reach this point initially, but we, we were uh, sort of famous in the organization for um, launching the first brake light clinic project in DSA, which most of the people on the call have probably heard of. Uh, we basically fixed brake lights for free as a sort of agitational way of like raising awareness about police violence and, and state violence and things like that. We got a lot of criticism and a lot of blowback that the project was um, like a form of charity. And we, we had to, you know, do some internal struggling and political development. Um, but I think we've come out with an understanding that mutual aid is a tactic. Um, and so as a tactic, um, you know, it's a, it only makes sense. It can only really be evaluated 
um, within the framework of a larger campaign, how effective it is at advancing your campaign's goals. Um, as socialists, you know, we're fighting for working class power and we're fighting to capture the state. Um, and so um, using forms of services can be a way of building trust with the communities of people that we're trying to bring, on, bring into our fight, but we can't evaluate whether mutual aid is good or bad on its own. It's like saying is canvassing good or bad or petitions good or bad, you know. Um, so the way that we kind of understand mutual aid is, um, <clears throat> I'll just talk a little bit about um, our campaign right now. So right now, um, our chapter, um, when the crisis hit, you know, we were in New Orleans, so we were really, really hard hit. You know, we had for a while the highest per capita rate of cases in the country. Um, our next door neighbor, St. John the Baptist Parish, has the highest per capita rates of death in the country. Um, and of course, our economy is very heavily reliant on service and tourism. So, um, I mean, probably 40% of the members in my chapter are laid off right now. There's um, 100,000, we estimate between 85,000 and 100,000 unemployed restaurant workers in the greater New Orleans metropolitan area. So they, they constitute a massive section of our, um, of our workforce. Um, and so we, we also, in the, in the city, we have um, a convention center that um, oversees a reserve fund that is made from money that is uh, basically like hotel and tourism taxes. So each hotel bed that is rented in the city, they get a portion of that. And so they have an annual revenue of at least $30 million a year. Um, and they right now sit on $186 million of unrestricted funds, like a rainy day fund. So community organizers in our city have been trying to get our hands on this money for a long time. Um, and it's literally, that money is made from the work that restaurant workers do in our city. So we, DSA, um, did a lot of, we did some research to figure out, you know, who, who our target was. Um, and then we, we came up with a demand, which was we wanted $100 million, um, half of that relief funds, be, be allocated evenly with no means testing and no restrictions to every single restaurant worker in the city. So that sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually only $1,000 per worker. <clears throat> So we, um, we quickly teamed up with Unite Here. We have really good relationships with the local labor movement. And um, we built out a coalition together with Unite Here. Now it's at something like 37 organizations. Uh, most of the major unions um, in town with the exception of like IBW and the plumbers. Um, and then most like working class organizations. So like undocumented and immigrants, um, workers organizations, sex workers organizations, et cetera. Um, so we used unemployment trainings and tax clinics as a way of bringing people into this campaign. Um, we, of course, like our economy, you know, it's tourism, but it's not just restaurant workers and hotel workers. There's a lot of um, like taxi cab drivers, Uber drivers, gig workers, um, like sex workers, dancers, um, and other people like psychics, musicians, all sorts of things. And um, so we, you know, those are the people that fall through the cracks. And so we, we tried to, we set up, a, actually we set up a mutual aid Facebook group that our chapter doesn't, our chapter basically runs as a kind of a front, but we don't really, we don't, it, it's not too clear that it's connected with DSA, but we, we moderate it and um, we sort of use, use that as like an agitational tool. There's about 6,000 people in that mutual aid group. So that was like our base. And then we also um, sent out a petition and got about 1,800 signatures, about 1,200 of them are unemployed hospitality workers. So we had a base of about 8,000 people. And so in the first um, month of the campaign, we were hosting regular tax clinics for independent contractors to teach them how 
they could file a simple tax form so that they could qualify for the $1,200 relief check. And then we also were setting up um, unemployment workshops. We partnered with a local like nonprofit organization called the Southeastern Louisiana Legal Services. So they were able to provide like their expertise. And what we provided was um, access to workers. And also we used that as an agitational tool. We, we said, you know, why is it that the people who need this money most are always the people who fall through the cracks? How is it that we're getting, you know, we are the people that keep this city running. Like we know that the, that the city of New Orleans runs because of the work we do. And yet we're letting, we're getting left in the gutter um, by the people who've gotten rich off of our work. And so that was really effective in the first stage of the campaign. Though what we've seen now is that most people have filed for unemployment. And so we have shifted away from using that form of um, mutual aid. And now what we've started to do is there were other mutual aid organizations that had sprung up in the city, organizations that just provided services without political education. Um, and so we're partnering with them. Um, there's an organization in the city called the Greater New Orleans Caring Collective. They started around March 15th and they've really quickly um, established this incredible infrastructure. They've been able to distribute fresh food um, and other services to a thousand working class families across the Greater New Orleans area. And they have this desperate need for volunteers. So rather than set up our own mutual aid system, uh, what we did was partner with another organization that already had that infrastructure so, so we can meet both of our needs. They get access to our volunteers and we get access to working class families and we can use them, um, we can agitate them and try to politically educate them. So that's, that's kind of how I feel personally. I mean, I think just to reiterate, mutual aid is a tactic. It has to be understood in the, within, a broader, within a framework of a broader um, campaign around the demands. Um, and it's a way of bringing working class people into your struggle and building trust, but it's not enough on its own. Thanks, Michael. Uh, one of the points that you bring up is something that we might want to discuss more when we get to the discussion period about money, because under the CARES Act, many cities and states have uh, bundles of money. I know in Detroit, we have $181 million. So what are we going to do? Is the uh, city going to use that to help people pay their rent uh, or uh, what else? So uh, having people who understand that there is money and that we should be asking for it uh, is I think a really important part of uh, worker self-organization. I think yeah, Holly, I yeah. Oh, I will say also, I didn't mention it, but we did win $1 million from that funds um, to be given to workers in the city. And we also won an additional $1.5 million in grant funding that our coalition is going to be um, distributing to work, like our, the members of our organizations, um, according as, as however we see fit. So we, we won $2.5 million, though. Didn't get all the way there. <laughs> Great. So... Um... I want to introduce uh, uh, Kali Akuno, the co-founder and executive director of Cooperation Jackson, which is a network of worker co-ops in Jackson, Mississippi, that I'm sure most of us know something about, have followed, uh, and are very excited uh, to hear about what's, what's happening there. Kali? Greetings, everybody. Um, sorry it took me a minute to uh, get on, unfortunately. Um, we tried to do a um, Zoom broadcast uh, to Facebook yesterday, and we were hacked and attacked by uh, some white supremacists. So I've been uh, somewhat locked out of my account, as uh, was my, my co-host. 
Uh, and I'm mentioning that number one, so many of you uh, can be forewarned uh, when using this particular tool. Uh, there's been warnings out there before. I think uh, we saw some, thought we took some some good uh, protective measures, but uh, could be stronger. Uh, and here, um, you know, uh, in Jackson, um, the crisis is not as acute uh, with COVID-19 as it is uh, in New Orleans. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're we're taking the situation lightly or that it's being handled in any way uh, adequate uh, to protect human life. Um, as many of you know, uh, our governor uh, is looking for any and every way uh, to try to open the state back up uh, very prematurely. Uh, the death toll has been as devastating here as it has been in other places uh, on official record. Uh, but I stress that unofficially, uh, we may never know or may not know for some time uh, what the real toll was. And I say that because uh, in my community alone, um, there's uh, several homeless shelters uh, that we collaborate with um, and, and know many of the folks in the community who live here uh, some who live in, in uh, um, homes uh, in the neighborhood um, that are part of the, the, the CLT, actually, in fact, but they haven't been uh, either demolished because folks have been living in them even before we purchased them, um, or the, uh, because we haven't been able to redevelop them yet. Um, you know, that takes volunteer time, uh, hours, and money, and, and uh, trying to manage what we can do over a period of time with our limited resources, um, you know, put some strain on that. Uh, but we know some folks have been in there. And unfortunately, we know that there's been at least uh, six members in the community who have died of, of things similar to COVID-19. Um, and we will never know, but this started at the end of February and it's been ongoing. Uh, and folks have not been receiving medical treatment um, and even those who have tried have been turned away, uh, even it was when it was known that they were clear and visibly sick. Um, so we know that there's a serious undercount that's taking place uh, just from, from the little information that we have and we can see evidence with our own eyes and our own work in our community. Uh, and, and we know that this, is, this type of phenomenon is being kind of replicated. We've heard of a, of a serious report of undercounting in New York and uh, Los Angeles. So uh, we also suspect, um, you know, that's taking place in New Orleans and other places as well. Uh, but we can speak to that directly. In terms of our kind of, you know, immediate response, um, the first thing we, we really tried to do uh, was work within the parameters of uh, our experience coming out of Hurricane Katrina was to get ourselves organized uh, to do mutual aid. Uh, we set up a small operation. Um, you know, very quickly uh, in the beginning of March, uh, after we, we did a kind of own uh, health assessment and risk assessment, shut down our normal operations. Most of the co-ops, with the exception of the farm, you know, basically shut down uh, the beginning of March um, and tried to go into a mutual aid orientation. Uh, luckily for us, we were um, contacted by some comrades in Italy uh, who had got to jump on this in the last two weeks of uh, February. And they had told us from their experience over the course of, I think, about a three-week period that we should stop doing that, that if we couldn't provide 
you know, everybody who was volunteering with us and working with us, uh, the proper personal protective, you know, equipment that we should stop. And the reason being, if they got out there, um, you know, doing what folks have to do uh, on a community basis to kind of protect each other uh, when, when the state is unable or unwilling to do so, uh, and they all got sick. You know, fortunately, neither group in uh, Naples or Milan, um, uh, no one died, you know, uh, fortunately, who was doing the organizing work, uh, but they all got sick, I think, almost to a person. So uh, that gave us a heads up, and we stopped that, we stopped that operation um, and then tried to repivot, and it took us a while to kind of figure out what we could do with the skills and resources that we had and really put into use in the community. And where we landed ultimately was uh, producing masks, which we've, you know, been producing in, in mass stock and trying to give those out uh, to free to everybody in the community. And we're doing two types of masks. Uh, one is a 3D print mask. Uh, and uh, those are kind of a higher quality and, and are far more protective um, than the normal kind of cloth ones that you see many people making. Uh, so we designated those uh, for medical staff and frontline workers. And we've been able to produce, I think, about 150 of those. Um, they're a little bit harder and take a little bit longer uh, to produce. And it also took us a while to, find, to figure out, about three weeks to figure out kind of the, the most efficient design with the resources available, you know, in town. Um, so we did that. And then uh, we basically now have a six-person team, which is, you know, sewing masks, uh, five days a week uh, at this this rate and pumping out a couple of hundred a week. Um, then we've also figured out how to, uh, I wouldn't, by our definition of mutual aid, I wouldn't call what we're doing at this point mutual aid because there's very little uh, exchange between uh, us and the community on this. So it's much more of a kind of a release effort, but we have been doing that in miniature in terms of uh, figuring out how to provide food, primarily canned goods and dry goods, uh, uh, to folks in the community of particular need. So we've been doing that. Um, and then I think what I think will be our most critical contribution uh, is trying to stimulate this broad fight back um, uh, initiative um, calling for uh, mass actions on May 1st and building up towards hopefully, you know, what we want to see us all get to uh, is uh, a general strike um, in this uh, country, uh, which we know is going to take some time. Um, and so part of what we are uh, pushing with that is that the first of every month, encouraging uh, folks to take rent strikes, uh, work actions, and to keep building uh, so that we we unite, build our collective strength and force, uh, and be able to resist all the different things that the right is kind of trying to ram down our throats, uh, in the, exploiting this crisis to beat that back, uh, but also gain enough strength to be able to transform society. So that's a, a brief summation, I think, of uh, what we've called for, what we've pushed. Uh, I think up May 2nd, we'll have a deeper assessment of how good this initial phase of it would be. We see tomorrow as a launching pad, you know, uh, something to kick some things off, not that it's, not it's going to end all to be all but just really kick some things in motion. Uh, by many indications, many folks are picking up the call, and I think that's a beautiful thing, uh, organizing in their own name and their own interest. Um, and we're looking, really looking forward 
you know, they're just trying to harness us all into one uh, conversation and process going forward. We know it's going to take time, um, you know, so that, that we create a new future. You know, and I'll stop there uh, unless there's some more questions, but hopefully it just gives everybody a summation of some of what we've been thinking, doing, in our analysis of the situation. So uh, now we've heard from the four uh, uh, participants, and we're going to move into questions and discussion. Um, Michael, I know that you are going to have to leave early, and I wondered if you wanted to say something specific about restaurant workers. Well, I think that um, more broadly than mutual aid, I think that just as socialists, we're thinking about organizing working class people for power. That's part of our vision of how we, we build power and take power, so organizing mass numbers of working class people to be leaders in their own fight for liberation. Right now there's 15.6 million hospitality workers in this country. We can assume that most of them are laid off. Um, they don't have a union if they're restaurant workers. Um, there are not really any kind of membership-based working class organizations that are speaking to their needs or trying to organize them. So I see that this as a, a huge opening to organize with uh, you know, workers in an industry that's historically been very difficult to organize. And the average um, wage in the hospitality industry is 11.42 an hour. So I would highly encourage all of the organizers on this phone to start figuring out how they can start organizing with laid off hospitality workers in their, in their area. All right. Okay. And thank, um, you, thank you so much for having me. I actually have another call I have to jump on, but it was great okay. to be Okay, great. Bye. So um, I noticed uh, another question about uh, water, uh, which of course is a difficult situation since the entire United States, with the exception of a couple of cities like Lansing, Michigan, and Madison, Wisconsin, are basically uh, uh, have... Uh, pipes that are not adequate to the water that we need. Um, and the reason that we're all not being poisoned is that at least they're trying to uh, put some chemicals in the water so that the uh, pipes don't leach. But this is not a sufficient uh, system. So a lot of work uh, obviously needs to be done. One of the main community um, uh, issues is the question of water. And here in Detroit, we of course have had a situation for years where water is turned off if you cannot afford the $75 a month charge. So uh, the Department of Health said, oh, well, it's not really a problem uh, not having water. And then the pandemic comes around and even the governor had to admit that in fact it was a slight problem given that the main thing you're supposed to do is wash your hands. But it's very difficult to turn people's water back on after so many years of and having thousands of people without water. Uh, was there a specific question around water that someone asked earlier? I know that there was uh, someone speaking about uh, Newark uh, was talking about, ah, Tom Violette. Did you want to, was this the question you wanted to ask about the, the crisis uh, of the Newark Water Coalition? Uh, no, I was just offering uh, a similar experience 
in Newark. Ah, okay. There's actually higher levels of lead than even in Flint, and it's all over the country. That's right. It, it is. Yep. yep. I had a question. Sure. Uh, Bill Paulson. Um, as we ran, many teacher unions, including uh, in Boston, uh, are negotiating MOUs now, mem memorandums of understanding dealing with the current conditions. And my question was how to build off those around not only issues like distance learning, but um, other related issues, for example, uh, future cutbacks on the negative side or on the positive side, how to expand community schools. Um, I assume these kinds of things are being discussed in Boston. And so I just uh, wondered what your thoughts were. Oh, and my related question was, are you working uh, with other unions, either education workers or other Boston unions in terms of uh, some of these struggles? So, Anne, do you want to speak to that? Yeah. Um, the, I think the, the general answer to all of that is um, we're starting to, but um, so the MOUs, the memorandums of understanding um, kind of finally arrived. Um, I know personally it was actually, it was very difficult teaching with no guidance from anyone about what teaching was supposed to look like, how long it was supposed to take, you know, what the hours were supposed to be, anything. So, um, so in some ways it was, it was good to get them, but of course there's a lot of um, negative aspects to them um, as well. In terms of um, what's being discussed, the, what, I've, the, what I've been hearing is um, I was on a national um, UCOR, again, like the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, uh, I was on a national core call um, where folks all over the country were discussing what their MOUs were looking like and what the issues with them were um, and there's all kinds of issues. Um, the, what BTU Core has decided to do with that is we created a Google form that we're sending out um, to as many union and core leaders in, in the different schools as we can and we're trying to get people to gather feedback from their staff and um, to figure out what the, you know, patterns of um, feedback are. The, the big ones that I've heard is that the, we have synchronous hours where we're supposed to teach everyone together and then asynchronous hours where folks can be working on their own. And they, whoever, whoever wrote the MOU doesn't seem to understand that um, for every one hour of synchronous or like normal kind of classroom, everyone's on Zoom learning, that you're doing, there's an hour to an hour and a half beforehand and often afterward as well in terms of planning and then grading and giving feedback afterward. So the hours just don't line up. Um, so that's one big um, piece of feedback that we're hearing and, and trying to gather from folks. Um, so in terms of working with other educational unions around the country, that's process has kind of begun and hopefully will continue as we gather data on the on how people are feeling about the MOUs. They're all very different. Um, the, the thing in Boston is there's a, a different MOU, so it's a little confusing, but, um, that was signed a couple months ago. I've kind of lost track of time. Um, that was in it a kind of a takeover of some schools, but but 
kind of hidden under flowery language. Um, it, was, it was giving some schools extra money, taking money from other schools and assigning some teachers extra professional development hours. And it was all, it all felt a little shady um, and uh, not made clear. So one of the demands that the, um, the BTU is pushing right now is for that whole um, previous MOU to be suspended. Um, until the end of this crisis, which would at least give us more time to um, fight against it. So no definitive answers or anything like that, but these, these processes have started to get moving and hopefully we'll continue. Thanks. I think one of the, one of the situations that we're finding both in terms of teaching, but also bus drivers as well, where the, the there was something extended for example in several cities there's now free bus fares uh the bus drivers are able to uh have a certain social distancing in the bus and so forth but now they're beginning to tighten up say well that that's now all over and we're going to be going back to the to the normal and by the way several of you are being laid off so uh uh, I think there's a, a certain tension that's now coming into existence where we see that certain things that were granted, like uh, uh, paid lay, uh, days off, are now uh, being taken away. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, not surprising that you're seeing a lot of austerity measures coming up in these uh, memorandums of understanding, uh, because as you may know, for example, hospitals are now laying people off because it turns out that their lucrative uh, elective surgeries are not happening and therefore they're losing $100 million a month uh, because they've had to order all these extra PPEs and not have these expensive, luxurious operations. Who knew? <laughs> but this is the situation that we're facing. So now uh, another question is, uh, uh, are workers in the U.S. now looking at um, the health care, me Medicare for all, which is the obvious example? Um, does anyone want to take that question on and see how, uh, how given the crisis, um, there's a response either within the union movement or among uh, among people chatting that this obviously is an idea whose time has come. Um, Ted, do you want to take that since you're a nurse? Um, sure. I mean, I think it's something, it's, it's hard to, for me to really say what the American working class is thinking of, of this, for instance. Um, it's something that my union has been on record, you know, for many years supporting single-payer health care, Medicare for all, but it's something that I, I, I think has not necessarily been something that's been discussed as, as frequently as it could be. I think I, in the last few years, I wouldn't say that, that my union has played a particularly robust role in the, the movement for um, Medicare for all, but this crisis really does give, um, you know, it, it, it gives an opening to really have have some conversations about 
why, you know, why this is, why this crisis was so bad in the U.S. compared to so many other countries. Obviously, I mean, it's, it's not good anywhere, but uh, the U.S. was in a particularly vulnerable spot because of its, its uh, totally for-profit model of healthcare. And so I think it's easier to, to get an audience, certainly, to, to talk about those things, and especially now, I think, with, as you were saying, Diane, the, the, way, the reasons that these austerity measures are being proposed and imposed where they're being imposed um, it's, it's clear that it's just because our whole health system was, was based on, well, let's, let's balance out necessary services by, you know, this whole for like lucrative surgeries and, and things that aren't really necessary being, being kind of pushed on people and, you know, um yeah it's it's i think it's easier to point to an alternative vision of how how our healthcare system could be in a way that it it wouldn't it probably wouldn't be losing as much money if if healthcare were just structured for human need rather than just to to make money Kali, i'm wondering if i can bring you in on this conversation because uh you know, I, I live in Detroit. Uh, we have a very high rate of, uh, of positives. And in fact, although we're only a city of 670,000 now, we have over a thousand people dead in the last five weeks because uh, uh, we are a very vulnerable city and we have many underlying problems, including incredible uh, air pollution uh, that, uh, that uh, is just horrendous for the, the destroying the black community. And I'm assuming that Jackson also has similar problems. Yeah, very similar problems. Um, same structural dynamics. Um, I mean, we, uh, to the extent that there was um, uh, a major industrial um, you know, kind of uh, uh, set up uh, in Jackson. It's in, it's in the greater Jackson region and then down south in uh, Gulfport uh, with the shipyards and stuff that have been built there historically. And those are the two uh, areas in Mississippi that have been the hardest hit, not by uh, any coincidence. Um, you know, with just the concentrations of black working class people many who live in, in extremely impoverished conditions, um, you know, and, and uh, are also deemed to be those folks um, most essential, you know, in either the food industry, you know, as many as you may know, um, the chicken and catfish, uh, pig farm uh, industries are huge here in Mississippi. Uh, they rely on uh, a heavy dose of super exported black labor uh, and migrant labor. Many of you might recall uh, there was some very um, significant uh, raids that took place in some chicken plants here uh, last fall. Uh, the pretext of that, just so everybody's clear, 
was uh, two of the plants had, had led a very successful organizing campaign. Uh, and that was one way uh, to clear folks out that was well coordinated and orchestrated with uh, the, the chicken companies. Um, you know, our then uh, Governor um, Bill Bryant uh, and the personal friend and, and ally, uh, Trump. And if you go back and look at that, how that was conducted, um, you know, the, 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 the degree to which they had coordinated it and brought in more FBI uh, agents than was far more necessary in bringing in high-charging people, um, you kind of see the political outline forward. Uh, now you have um, the new governor, uh, Kate Reeves, very openly uh, saying that um, he, uh, you know, just parroting a lot of stuff that Trump was saying that uh, this was really just a bad flu. Uh, it was going to pass. Um, we didn't have to worry about it too much given uh, Mississippi's climate, that it would uh, not last here beyond uh, April, you know, once uh, it got hot uh, uh, again. Um, you know, and this, just a number of just crazy things that they put out that had no scientific basis whatsoever, um, but just are, are really caving in for first and foremost to the demands of small business uh, and these, you know, mainly uh, distributors to like Dyson and some of these other folks who run these big hog, uh, catfish, uh, and chicken plants, you know, for folks to get back to work. Uh, and just in some of these areas where there's been, like you've seen in Iowa or folks have seen in Tennessee, there's also been some of the major areas of transmission in our community as well. So we, we share a lot of the dynamics, you know, uh, of other cities of, you know, kind of mid-sized but very poor and impoverished communities that have a, a, an industrial base. Jackson is very much in that, in that dynamic. So uh, we've mentioned a couple of different areas where uh, the uh, virus has really hit home. Uh, um, uh, Anne talked about the immigrant community and a colleague talked about uh, meat processing. Uh, there's also, of course, uh, nursing homes, which in uh, Michigan and in other places too has contributed a tremendous number of both uh, positives and deaths from both the staff and the uh, the uh, the patients, uh, as well as prison. So these are the most vulnerable populations. Um, Anne, is there any particular outreach uh, uh, in terms of mutual aid that is working with essential workers in, uh, in the community group that you're involved with? Um, I, I don't know if I know. Um, the, so like I said, the mutual aid has two, um, as I understand, I mean, I'm not a central organizer by any means, but they kind of have the educational um, and political outreach component and the um, food and resources component. Um, the various groups that are in the neighborhood coalition that I'm in and that Stephen is also in um, are doing a lot of uh, webinars and, um, you know, call in hotlines and things like this, especially for housing um, and immigrant rights. Um, and so they've done outreach that way. I'm not sure what their specific outreach to essential workers 
has been or if there's been targeted outreach in that way? Okay. Um, I would say in answer to Pete Ratliff's question that the, uh, there's uh, one uh, labor grouping in the U.S. that is trying to move to organize the unemployed um, and involving uh, DSA uh, in that component, and that's the uh, uh, UE. Uh, and so uh, the, they're attempting to reach out to the people who are um, mostly reaching out uh, to, to them. And that includes uh, many of the Amazon workers, but also um, some of the other uh, food workers. Uh, I'm not sure that there's anyone on this call that can answer, can speak directly to that. Is there someone? Well, this, this is just beginnings. And I think it's, it, it's like the question on, on uh, health care. Uh, unions really haven't been discussing this because they haven't been discussing much other than uh, putting their finger to the uh, to the dam. Uh, but obviously, this is a discussion that will be uh, continuing. Um, there's a question here um, uh, to Kali about um, from Johanna Brenner. Uh, Johanna, would you? Uh, Address Kali about the uh, some of the uh, cooperative Jackson projects that uh, that exist, even if they aren't quite happening right now. Uh, yeah, I I just uh, feel like uh, it's important to connect or to talk about how we connect these very um, in some ways very exciting projects self-organization and mutual aid um, that are, in the first instance, clearly designed to organ help people organize to meet their own needs. This is the point about mutual aid versus charity. But I know that uh, Cooperation Jackson and colleagues' activism in it has been oriented toward a longer project of social transformation, and I think it would be good to have some conversation about that. How, how do you, colleagues, see these the connection between, on the one hand, this local praxis, and on the other hand, the idea of, of socialist transformation, or revolutionary uh, transformation? <laughs> um, you, know, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a long conversation into itself. Well, it's um, okay. You can, you can take a minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we always say, you know, I think number one for us, um, is trying to make it clear that we are engaged in, in, uh, trying to develop co-ops, worker co-ops and the solidarity economy as a means of building working class power, right. And working class self-organization. And we, we try to stress that. Uh, in particular, because we know in, in some regards, there's been some some deviation between like the co-op movement um, and particularly the union movement um, in this country in particular. Um, and we've seen, you know, a lot in the 70s and 80s, a lot of uh, co-ops really uh, kind of devolved in like, you know, um, Petty bourgeois kind of just specialty markets and, and, and deviations. 
uh, and really be used in some regards, uh, particularly in the food industry, uh, as kind of bulwarks of gentrification and displacement of uh, working class communities, black, particularly black and Latino communities. You know, so uh, we tried to walk in this uh, with our eyes kind of wide open as to both what the possibilities and limitations uh, are. Uh, but it was critical, like in a place like Jackson, you know, which, uh, as I said before, you know, uh, Jackson, unlike, say, Birmingham or uh, Atlanta, um, was primarily built to be a transit hub, you know, primarily between uh, New Orleans, St. Louis, and Chicago going north to south. Uh, and Atlanta to, to Dallas going kind of east to west when you look at what, like, what are the major nodes, you know, population and production nodes. So Jackson is kind of a transport hub. So what's, what's really been built here, you know, most of the last 70 to like 100 years on the industrial kind of capacity uh, are holding spaces in the kind of like freight transit. Uh, other types of real uh, production stuff that has been built up uh, is primarily been in the service of, of that uh, particular section. So that has left us to really try to fill in a couple of boys because, you know, like most of the United States, Jackson, uh, what little kind of industrial base it had, uh, was there was a major period of deindustrialization, very strategic and deliberate, um, you know, removing capital, uh, sending it overseas to exploit even cheaper labor, you know, uh, in Latin America, uh, in Southeast Asia, um, you know, uh, uh, and then in China. So um, we kind of entered in this phase knowing that not only were we trying to reorganize the, the working class, but there's also an element of kind of, you know, developing the productive capacity as well. Um, and doing that uh, in a way, you know, that, that it would be both democratic, but also instructive of building working class capacity and understanding of self-governance. So that's part of the long-term project, right? Because uh, ultimately from our point of view, um, workers are going to have to um, take control, not only of the means of production, but reorganize how the society actually functions and governs. Um, and we think that these can be fundamental basic schools to kind of teach folks how to do that. But we don't want to pose it, nor have we ever posed it as this is something that replaces um, the, the level of direct challenge to capital uh, at the various points of production in the major corporations and the major shops. Um, this should be something that's combined with and then be able to provide a, a kind of a training school uh, that will enable others to um, basically seize the means of production and democratize them and come up with a broader plan that is more uh, neat to design, to fit human needs and balance our needs with, with the environment. Because we know capital is not going to serve that end in no form or fashion. I mean, it'll, it'll exhaust uh, every resource on the planet before it really makes any adjustments in the ruling class, you know, increasingly making it clear from their perspective that um, even before COVID-19, many of them were not just fantasizing, but planning on uh, going to the moon or going to Mars and leaving all the rest of us here to rot. Um, you know, while they figure out 
more how to mine uh, asteroids, how to mine comets, how to mine the moon. And, and I'm not speaking of things that are speculative. I'm think, speaking of things that have been uh, put in motion that they've been experimenting with uh, for most of the last 20 years and have actually made some significant events. I, I was citing those things just to give people a, a, a sense of, you know, the vision of what's, what the other side of the equation is planning. Now, you know, they aren't um, masters of the universe, despite what they think, and, and their, their plans increasingly are falling short uh, in every measure. But I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us um, to be very clear about uh, how we uh, can, can work to transform the society and what our plans and goals are to meet human need. Um, you know, because that, that is our still, I think, broad historic task. Um, and I think this crisis puts that more more in focus. I, I, you know, there, I think folks on a mass level are just waking up in a way that that many probably have not experienced in their lifetime. Uh, just how inept the system is, how it refuses to bend to meet human needs. Um, and that human need is not a priority in any form or fashion, and that something in, new and different. Uh, is needed. I think many folks are receptive to that, and I think folks will be even more receptive to it, quite honestly, in a month or two um, uh, as they try to, I was mentioning earlier, they try to ram down, uh, you know, more draconian measures down our throat. You know, I think right now, in this, this period of the crisis, labor, you know, quote-unquote essential labor, um, which varies from state to state, you know, what that definition quite means is why I'm, I'm putting quotes in it. Um, uh, right now has the upper hand, but as of now, there's 30 million new people uh, entered the unemployed roles, uh, and many of those folks, millions of them, are going to be desperate. And that means that, that, that if we don't, if we're not organized sufficiently in a short period of time, the pendulum will swing back against us. I would argue, comrades, because we know millions of people are going to be desperate, and they'll mean they'll take, you know, wages and conditions. Uh, that were worse than, than those that, that uh, existed before the crisis hit. And it's not like those were ideal uh, to begin with. So something we need to be mindful of and, and start really digging in and fighting back and organizing, I think, right now uh, to the greatest extent possible uh, so that we don't come out of this worse uh, uh, than we went into it. Yes, there's a, a vision of a different, uh, of an alternative. Um, Kay, uh, you were uh, wanted to ask a question about uh, the relationship between uh, calling on the state uh, by mutual aid groups, I believe. Well, yeah. I think I've kind of put out a, an idea. It seemed like Michael kind of had, um, had a very good idea, that whole campaign for the restaurant workers to demand that the portion of their pay that went into this fund, um, of which they're demanding $100 million back, is a great example of connecting the two arenas of mutual aid organizations and work and self-organization activity with um, demands on the state. Okay. But that's just the beginning and that's just the, how does that continue and just, right, and it seems to me it, it's uh, also appropriate when you think about rent, rental, 
we've got a moratorium now. Uh, and as I think Anne mentioned before, what's going to happen at the end of that moratorium where people aren't back to work or can't go back to work um, or don't have the money and there's, they owe this huge amount of money. Well, what about the CARES Act, which gave money to the cities? Uh, shouldn't people be demanding that that money be given to them so that they don't have this huge debt on their back? Um, so again, you have this dynamic between organizing yourselves and making a demand on the state. Um, let's see. Uh, Pete, I, uh, Pete Radcliffe is in uh, is uh, uh, active in the UK right now, and um, I think he wants to ask a question about uh, um, uh, food banks. Uh, or why don't you come in, uh, Pete, and explain this? Okay, th thanks, Diane. Um, one of the things we've got a problem here is. Um, we're, we have a sort of, uh, we've had loads of people thrown out of work, as I know you've had in, in the US, uh, and there's limited welfare provision for them. In fact, there's six weeks before they get any money. And at the moment, you know, uh, many of them are, are getting to the end of all their savings and they're literally going hungry. So what we uh, are, are thinking of doing here is trying to, the, the food banks exist and they have existed for a long period of time, but they're comparatively small. Uh, and now they're massively overburdened and we're trying to think of ways of leaning on. We have local councils and many of them are labor run councils. And we're trying to get them to take responsibility for food distribution out of the hands of the supermarkets and also making it free wherever possible. I wondered, is there any developments in the US we can learn from or are there any things like that, that are happening? I don't think there are, uh, but I do want to uh, mention something uh, that occurred to me. Uh, we now have a situation where there's too much food. That is, there's uh, food that the farmers used to provide for the restaurants, but the restaurants are closed down. Uh, and so they have the surplus of food and a surplus of milk, and they actually are plowing over, I saw a farmer the other day, plowing over the onions in his field and uh, throwing out the milk. And it reminded me very much in the 1930s where uh, some of the unemployed groups demanded that the state provide trucks so that they could go and get things that they needed. Wood, from, uh, because it was... Uh, uh, a need for uh, for fire uh, and uh, and uh, getting food, and it struck me that one of the demands that could be made is by the food banks that the state get this uh, get the food, get the milk, and that it uh, that uh, it be distributed here, and that the state pay for the farmers for it. Uh, but I don't know of any. Uh, of anything that actually has happened that was just it struck me by seeing the destruction of of food and now john asks a question about uh special ed teachers um which uh strikes me as a very important question because uh there's a lot of education of the parents that needs to go on 
And uh, Anne, can you talk a little bit about um, how, how uh, in all aspects of education, working with the parents is becoming more important? Yeah. Um, so as I kind of put in the chat there, the it's absolutely true. We're doing a ton of coaching of, of tech and computers and Zoom and all this with students and also parents. Um, it's new to a lot of people and it kind of even more starkly illustrates the the um, difference between people, who, you know, kids who have had computers at home and are well-versed in them and those who aren't. And this is definitely a first for them to use computers at home is like, or to have internet at home is totally new. Um, so we're doing a lot of coaching around that. Um, and yeah, special ed is looking very different these days as well. Um, in, in Boston, special ed teachers have been instructed they need to carefully document to basically cover, cover themselves. Um, they need to document every interaction that they're having with special ed students, which um, is a lot of students. And they're meant to be contacting them very frequently and sometimes at all hours of the day because middle schoolers don't start their day until 3 p.m. and you know it goes very late. So it's a huge lift on the special ed teacher's part. And um, like John, I think said, this is for kids learning these new tech skills. It often takes special ed kids longer to learn. And so that even that adds even more to the lift. It often has to be in a one-on-one -on -one phone conversation. Um, so it is incredibly time consuming. And these are some of the things that are not incorporated into the MOU, which I was talking about earlier. Um, there's also a lot, I mean, there's other groups of kids who are um, really struggling, uh, kids whose parents are not home, they're still working. Um, and so not only are they trying to figure this out on their own and trying to figure out what a school day looks like at home, but often taking care of one or more younger siblings and trying to get them to do the work as well. Um, so there's lots of, lots of different groups of students who this is just really tough for, special ed certainly being one of them and others as well. And, and uh, just put a personal note, how, how has that changed some of your teaching? Um, I mean, it's no comparison to, uh, to before. I basically post, um, post on Google Classroom two assignments a week um, and then spend the rest of my time calling kids individually, trying to track them down, texting parents, um, you know, doing online office hours, which are very sparsely attended for a lot of reasons. Um, some of which I just mentioned, taking care of siblings is a big one. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's completely different. It's, I mean, and even in the, on the best of days, we only have 50%, sometimes a little bit more of students doing the work. Um, again, there's a lot of other responsibilities. There's a lot of um, food insecurity. There's a lot of sickness going around East Boston. So um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different issues to juggle all at once, for sure. Okay. So I noticed in the chat box that a couple of people from California and New York uh, talked about how there is some attempt to see that these farmers uh, should be uh, getting this food to the food banks. Uh, but I would say, in general, uh, the food banks are pretty uh, non-political non uh, and have been operating for a long period of time. Uh, and so I don't know of any new 
new ones uh, or young people that have entered to uh, sort of uh, change the um, thinking or the outlook of the food banks. Uh, other, uh, I'm not sure if we have other questions here that uh, as uh, things gone down and we've scrolled to, um, but um, uh, perhaps we should just uh, end with having summations from uh, the people who were the um, presenters, um, just uh, summarizing what is the working class self-organization that's necessary right now and what can uh with the the idea that of course the class struggle still exists so you have the capitalist class trying to move on austerity and memorandums of understanding that are uh in some cases uh very uh surveillance oriented they want to know what the teacher is doing every minute of the day. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a vision that there might be a different kind of a curriculum or a different kind of, of uh, uh, jobs, uh, the uh, rejection uh, of the just-in-time uh, delivery that means that there's nothing, no extra anything, no extra PPEs for anybody if there's any kind of an emergency. So you see this, uh, the both sides uh, clashing, and that's why it's a sort of tension, uh, uh, a moment of great tension. But what are your uh, uh, brief hopes or, uh, or uh, fears as we go through this period? And I'll start with, um, I'll start with Ted and then Anne and then Kali. So um, Ted, do you wanna take it away as a nurse on the front line? Well, I think, um, I think um, my hope is just that, uh, that people start to feel more empowered. I mean, I think when things, when, when, when disaster strikes, I think it gives us an opportunity to point out I mean, it's capitalism is really the root cause. I mean, pretty much any any disaster um, that I can think of in in recent history, um, capitalism has played a, a significant role. Um, so, but people by coming together, by you know, uh, advocating for for human needs and by struggling together um can can really transform you know their own consciousness and really wake up to the fact that we do have the power to to change things in a in a really major way so i think that just just that change in consciousness which can happen in a hurry in in crisis times like this when we can help to um you know, as capitalists try to to take advantage of every crisis, not let a good crisis go to waste by imposing austerity. In the same way, I think that we can avoid letting a good crisis go to waste by, you know, building building greater bonds of of solidarity and and using using our our uh, skills and our our intelligence as, as the working class to, um, to build alternatives. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, I think what, what my biggest hope and 
what I'm excited about, I guess, um, is this potential to rethink schools and curriculums and testing. Um, like I said, like a lot of things seem to be possible all of a sudden that, you know, we were told were impossible before, like canceling MCAS and, you know, reforming those tests, getting parent input um, and cooperation with teaching, with the curriculum, um, getting internet to every student and um, lots, lots more that are on the horizon, I'm sure. So um, teachers are, I think, more invested in this than than even normal. So um, I hope we can take advantage of this to rethink what schools look like when we come back. Okay, uh, and Kali? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we have to really rethink everything. Um, I think there's tremendous potential and opportunity to do so. I think there's uh, some things within our past, one of which you spoke to, uh, that we really need to start uh, moving on as best we can under these conditions. And that is like uh, unemployment councils, um, you know, to really build strength. And I think there, if we look back into the 1930s, there's tons of examples there of how uh, some serious mutual aid networks and cooperatives were built in the context uh, and almost everywhere you, you look in the 1930s, uh, that was taking place uh, and really try to figure out how to extend that into supporting uh, and building strength with those who uh, will still be working at like the Amazons and, and the Walmarts, you know, and the, the things that we know are going to kind of come out on top uh, as, as the economy kind of reopens back up to provide them with the kind of organizing strength and solidarity uh, that they need um, and to make sure that those uh, institutions and like uh, big tech and uh, you know the kind of gig orientation that we know many of the businesses are going to try to shift to uh, that we get the upper hand in organizing ourselves on the front end uh, to be able to redirect how that's used uh, and, and who profits from it. I think there's tremendous opportunity. I mean, I, I definitely hold the view that uh, we should not let uh, this crisis go to waste. And, and when organized and pulled together and with a vision, uh, I think we can move some pretty serious mountains. Uh, it's not going to be easy, um, but I think the opportunity is definitely in front of us. Well, I want to thank everybody for uh, being a presenter or being on the call and thinking of questions and discussion and uh, to realize that um, there's the, the class struggle continues at this moment, uh, and hopefully we're going to be stronger with a clearer vision about what it takes, and that the essential workers who are the backbone right now of this society are the ones that, and to a large extent, were considered the unskilled workers, aside from maybe the nurses and the doctors, and that they're the ones uh, who are sustaining uh, life right now. So uh, again, it's the uh, eve of May Day. Uh, I wish you all a very wonderful day tomorrow and that you will find a way of expressing uh, the struggle of uh, workers is uh, one that must come through solidarity. Uh, I'll be in a car caravan most of the day and I hope uh, 
that uh, you will find something meaningful uh, for celebrating this very important workers' holiday. Thanks and good night.